Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast discussing TV, film, comedy, more TV, novels, music, more TV, comics, podcasts, apparently more TV, other stuff, and also TV. This is Mark Lintonmeyer wearing robes of gray, as is mandated by the state to indicate my status as all done breeding. I'm Erica Spires in New York City, and this is part one in my audio archives of My Feminine Oppression. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm your econo podcast host for today's show. I'm wearing stripes. Folks might be wondering, are we talking about the TV show? Or are we talking about the novel? We are going the extra mile, and we all read the novel. So we could actually make this truly actually not just about TV anymore. Erica, do you want to give us a summary of the novel, just a setup for people that have no knowledge of what Handmaid's Tale is? Somewhere in the near future, Margaret Atwood has described a society in which a far-right political group with a very religious slant has taken over because the world has experienced some sort of problem with breeding. Not enough people can have children and we're losing our population and also the world itself is slowly dying. And so these people are able to take over the political system of the United States, turn it into a place called Gilead where people are subjected to specific roles in the society in order to hopefully rebuild it into some sort of utopia. But in fact, it is no utopia at all. People are subjected to being handmaids, women who still can breed, where they are assigned to a home where a commander and the commander's wife each month basically rape that woman and try to breed so that they can then have their own baby, which they then take from the mother's arms if she is able to have them, and raise the child as a child of Gilead. This is the story of one of those handmaids, Offred, named for Fred, who she is offered to and of his household. I also read the Handmaid's Tale, the graphic novel. Ooh. And did anyone rewatch the movie from the 1980s? 90s? 1990. Actually, I think we had to watch it in college as a supplement to reading the book again. Not in place of reading the book. So when you're writing your essay on it and you just start referring to the Aiden Quinn character? Right. That's right. <laughs> I watched a couple of clips on YouTube. I did not feel the need since I had just binged this book over basically two days. I did not feel the need to relive the entire thing through yet another. How is the binging of the book? I kind of wish that I could get out of that little room that she was in and stop... Uh, it seems like it's a little better taken in smaller doses than I was taking it. But it's a wonderful book, of course. It's, mm-hmm. you know, very much as fully as good as 1984, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I agree. I liked them both. I had read it a few times, and this time around, I listened to the audio version narrated by Claire Danes. It was very good. Oh. Good performance. 
I did not reread it. I read it in high school. I read it again in college. So you guys are fresher on the novel than I am. But I am a huge Atwood fan, and I've read a lot of her books. She's such a prolific writer, though. I actually haven't read all of her things, but I think she's a beautiful writer. I mean, it's clear. I think I always tell people when they ask me about her, when they, you know, maybe they only know about Handmaid's Tale, like, you know, she was a poet as well. So she has a very poetic way in which she writes. Sometimes it makes it a little dense at the beginning, I think, of her novels. And you're like, what world am I in? And she just slowly takes her time and builds the world with really beautiful language. But it's always been worth it when I've read her books. I do not like at all to name drop on this podcast, but I can tell she has read a lot of Sartre, his novel Nausea, which is just a big, long explanation of how gross everything looks around him. <laughs> like She's doing phenomenology here of what it's like to be a slave and how it destroys your humanity, how it constricts what you're allowed to think about, how it makes the individual things around her seem. And I think that even comes through very well in the, the show, I think. There's quite a lot of those inner monologues, many of which I think are probably taken more or less from the book. I haven't compared that. Yeah, in season one, it's very much from the book. Obviously, not once we get past that. But I still think they did a pretty good job, for the most part, of making it sound like in the same voice in the further seasons. I have a bit of an issue sometimes with how obstinate she becomes. I mean, whatever, that's the showrunner's idea, and you know, you have to keep a TV show interesting. But there are times, and one of the articles that we will point to today talks about that, and like, how far can you actually go with not just how obstinate, but how confident she becomes in that world? Because it's clear from the book in the first season, like even looking at people the wrong way is an active aggression. And you have to be very careful. So it's, it is kind of strange how the progression of the TV series is and how much more The Handmaids get away with. We're spoiling everything, right? I would think the assumption for the TV show is that you've seen the whole thing. I don't know that we'll be getting into too many specific plot details, especially from the later seasons. I don't know that we need to, just to be able to talk about the themes and the characters and the process of transitioning a book to a TV show, but certainly in general terms. And I think if you've seen the show, don't be afraid about the book being spoiled. Like there's a bit at the end of the book that we should talk about that's not in the show, but telling you that in advance does not spoil anything. It doesn't tell you what happened. The book stands on its own enough that even if you've seen the whole show, you know, as I had before I read the book, you know, it's like reading Shakespeare. Like it doesn't matter if you already know what the plot is at all. So for those who didn't follow that, yes, we're going to spoil everything. <laughs> and it is important, Mark, I think somewhat, because I think we have two very different characters between the book and the TV show, and that becomes even more highlighted in the second and third seasons. When you talk about this book being phenomenology, part of this is, of Fred, I guess, she's very much an observer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it should be offered, right? Why not? It's supposed to be like a hidden thing. Like Only when it's pointed out to you do you realize, oh, it's of Fred, of Glenn. It also took me a while just to understand that under his eye was like under his eye and not just some weird made-up word. Under his eye that they were walking around <laughs> saying to each other in the seeing the TV show first. You mondegreened a completely nonsense word into existence. Mersey dose and dozy dotes and little lambsy divey. When they would greet each other with that, it was strange. But right, she's very much an observer. Even in the first season, she becomes much more of an active character with acts of defiance and not just things she's thinking. And that totally makes sense in converting something from the printed page to 
a visual medium like that where we have to have a little better understanding. Except for a few movies that come to mind, you can't really narrate the entire time. And I'm not sure you'd want to with this book. So I think that change makes a lot of sense. But then keeping with this character, she just really does become this badass action hero who grows some plot armor. And we start thinking, well, nothing's going to happen to June to offer because nothing ever happens to her. So why are we really worried about her anymore? That first season, I didn't know if there was going to be a second season. When she gets carted off, there are shows that, especially now in the age of prestige television, you can have a pretty big name and just get rid of them. They even had guest stars that came on and were there for an episode or a couple episodes and were gone. So they showed a willingness to do that. After three seasons, it's starting to feel like it is a different kind of thing. And it really is June's story and it's not going to continue without her. Yeah. How long do you think they're going to go? How many seasons do you predict? Five. One season too many. (laughs) I think so too. I think four seasons would be fantastic. To really give the audience satisfaction, you have to just knock this whole society down. So I think that that's going to take a little longer than the thing that happens at the end of season three is a blow, but clearly one that the society could just come back from and have a bunch of executions. There's no inevitable domino based on that. Like I think they need to do some more prep and show us more parts of the world and make us understand a little better, like what's going on, you know, in Chicago, in the places that they're actively fighting. Tell us more about the international relations. We've gotten more of a picture of that this season, but I just feel like it'd be a pretty monumental task in much the same way it was with Game of Thrones, where you're going to say like, oh, we're going to somehow get rid of this whole regime and wrap up all these things. Obviously, still June's story, not June and 12 other people as in Game of Thrones, but there's something still parallel that needs to be accomplished. I think you're probably right. I assume it's going to be five. That seems like a pretty round number that a lot of TV shows go for. I'm hoping that in season four, June gets out of Gilead, so at least we can have season five to see maybe how she takes people down from Canada. But I really just hope they don't ruin it by just continuing it over and over. I think there are some great spinoffs that could be had from this series outside of June's story. I don't know that that would happen, but if we look at the epilogue of the book and you know that became something, or we look at somebody else's story and see what in the book where she takes everyone who isn't white and puts them, you know, somewhere else. And that didn't happen in this story, but we certainly know that there's been some segregation of some sort and why are certain people in Chicago and California and wherever. I'd be interested kind of to see more what happens with the rest of the world building as well. Yeah, we might as well open up the race box here since this is obviously a parallel. There's something problematic about doing a variation of the black experience, as opposed to just telling more of the actual black experience, which is just as bad as this in historical times, especially of black women during slavery times. Like that's the experience that's being described here. But what if it was a white person? It could be you. So there's something a little effective for a different audience about this, but why is it necessary to make a crazy sci-fi setting for things that kind of actually happen to people? I think if you're resistant to that social narrative, you're just going to never see it in the art that you watch. Whereas if you see something in a sci-fi setting, don't know necessarily going in that that's what it is, and you start to relate to characters, June's being treated so terribly, all of the handmaids, all of the women really, even the ones with privilege are prisoners in their own way. So then you come to understand their plight, and then someone can point out to you and say, hey, you know, this really isn't too different from what's happening with people of color. Also with women, 
I would say not too long ago and still today in different parts of the world and even in our own society. So science fiction is often the gateway for these sorts of things, or parable is the gateway for this sort of thing, because you could have your walls up and just be totally resistant to hearing these kinds of stories until you're maybe led in through the back door like this. More specifically to The Handmaid's Tale, though, I think Atwood is going to write what she knows as a white woman, as a fairly liberal Canadian white woman. So she's writing from her own perspective. So it makes sense to me that she doesn't really address race as much in the book. Now, there have been several interviews about this and articles about it and how the TV series deals with it. I would be interested to know if there are any writers of color in the writing room, because I think that it is difficult for people who haven't had those experiences to write about them or to write about them well. You know, the series has come under some fire because, yes, there is more representation of people of color, but they do tend to be characters that aren't focused on. So that article that you pointed us, in its first season, The Handmaid's Tales, Greatest Failing is How It Handles Race. So this is about the first season, and I think that they might have read this and tried to address this more because it's saying, look, yes, they try to just neutralize, say this is a totally offensive society, but it's not offensive racially. All the women are oppressed in sort of the same degree. There are people of color among the wives, among the commanders, and this article pointed out that, well, there are a few, but they're kind of never focused on, and even, yes, it's a big step forward to hire people of color for these like major characters, June's husband, June's best friend, but they aren't focused on, they aren't given, well, I feel like in subsequent seasons, they widen the focus quite a bit. So you do see much more of those people. And they are, Angela Jade Bastien, the author here, is saying stuff like, well, when you know they're talking about Serena or about June, they close up on her face a lot. But they don't do that with Moira. Well, I would be extremely surprised if that is not something that was addressed specifically in later seasons. I was interested about this because I had read a few of the articles addressing the race issue. And I was like, well, what does Atwood say about this? Because she seems to be always doing interviews. So I found this by Anna Menta in Newsweek. Anna asks Atwood, Bruce Miller has said that season two deals more with Gilead's racial politics. And Atwood says, yeah, because he listens to feedback. That was one of the things people said. We're not seeing enough of this. We always had Moira. We always had Rita, but it wasn't in the foreground. And then she explains, in the original novel, Gilead does the South African method of segregation of years past. They ship people to a national homeland. You're told it's happening, but you don't see it happening. Bruce made the decision that there would be many more multiracial relationships than there had been since it was in the present time. And then she's asked, why did you go the segregation route originally? And Atwood says, because it was in the American past very recently. Remember how old I am? I existed quite a while before the civil rights movement. I saw it in action. Yeah, I think they have done a better job. I like that in season three, we're seeing a lot more of Moira and we're seeing how she handles things in Canada, how she is mobilizing efforts to get the Canadians who are supposed to be so nice to recognize the problems that are happening in Gilead and to actually make them do something about it rather than just being a place people can go. And in season three, this story also just allows for flat out racism in their society when we have three ants who are doing handmaid assignments and they point out that one couple doesn't want or they want a white handmaid, right? And that's something that they take into consideration as they're making assignments. So racism isn't gone. It's just acknowledged as a thing that's still there, but that's not the priority the way that 
infertility and lack of babies is the priority. And that makes sense to me. Growing up in the Bible Belt, in the area where I grew up, there are far fewer people of color than there are whites. It definitely is racism. But I've also heard comments, like I will never forget the one comment I heard from somebody at work. They had a child who was dating somebody of color. And she came to work and she said, well, I told her, I don't care what color is as long as he has Jesus in his heart. And that, for her, was a radical statement because she's totally fine with color, but you must be a Christian. So that kind of makes sense to me in this world that there are those people with that kind of separation of, are they racist? Maybe, maybe not. But in this world, it makes sense that they are prioritizing we need to populate the earth. So maybe just racism is background noise that no one hears because it's there all the time, but it's not their focus. One of the challenges that the TV show has to face in exploring this more, and maybe this is something that Atwood's going to do in this subsequent novel, The Testaments, to explain more of why this happened. You know, so there is the epilogue in the book, which is what, a couple hundred years in the future? It's a historian's talking about this time period and saying how this was a temporary reactionary blip, seemingly on an overall progressive trend, but it was given rise to by this fertility problems, which were a direct result of abuse of the environment. And they even mentioned, which I don't think comes up in the show, chemical warfare of somebody actually made a mumps virus or something that was supposed to be used on the Russian government and was discontinued because it was just too hard to control. But evidently, that's probably what had zapped the commander and many of the other high-ranking folks in Gilead. And it's also presented as much more bleak in the book that even when people are having kids, it's not just like most people are infertile, but a small number are still fertile. But even among the fertile ones, it's something like a 75% mortality rate, right? Most die where, you know, they show a baby born dead in the show. And that is a scene that comes out of the book more or less. But the fact that it is so rare for it to actually work out, that seems to make things even more terrifying. It's pretty gruesome. They refer to them as unbabies or shredders in the book. And I, that really stuck with me the first time I read it. I was like, wow, it's so much to go through when that is so commonly the outcome. She has some gruesome language, for sure. She has some gruesome language, and she has some, like the term shredder, or just some of the sort of funnier bits in terms of language, like the pravaganza, or this whole idea of the Soul Scrolls store. That's just weird in the book. It doesn't quite make it to modern times, this idea that you would call in on your pocket computer and have a machine read out loud your prayer when you could, in a world of smartphones, you could just have your phone reciting prayers for you all day long if you needed to. Participation, the participatory execution towards the end. Yeah, I think a lot of those didn't quite make it to the TV show by name. It just it comes across as a little goofy when you say some of these words out loud. I don't know if it's Atwood or... Offer it, who has this fascination with language or a bit of both, but she commonly hooks onto words and parses them and examines all their different meanings. So she hooks onto the word job at one point and all of its connotations or work out. And I kind of notice this about halfway through, and there may be some other ones as well, but it really speaks to our narrator as being such an observer. I don't want to say passive, but it's partly she has very little that she can do, very little agency. So she describes things very well to us, which as a reader, you have to appreciate. Yeah. And I think it's both, right? Because June or Offred, she works at a publishing company, right? So they both would have a particular fascination with words. 
In the show, in the book, it's like she digitizes books to put them on CD. Like it seems something, you know, that she went to college, but it's a less intellectually demanding. I think they upgraded her job in the show. Although in either place, I guess she was, you know, not super career oriented, not a really high achiever. That was one of the things that part of the reason she was put in this class is because she was not the exceptional can do it all mother. There are multiple reasons why she was put in this category. The main reason, though, being just that her husband had been previously married, that they just invalidated all marriages like that. And I think in the book, they just say that that's how they started. And then it was all marriages that weren't made under the official church. And as soon as you just declare all those illegitimate, then all the kids are bastards and you can take them away. But there's at least in the show, I think more of an emphasis on if there was some reason that some, you know, meddling social worker might think you're a bad parent, then like you would be the first one to lose your kids. As we're talking about the oppression of women and how Atwood famously doesn't call her work science fiction, she calls it speculative fiction. So she says she doesn't write about anything that's not already happening or could happen. And I know that recently there's been an issue in Missouri with state-sanctioned pelvic exams for women seeking an abortion. Have you heard about this? It would not surprise me. I live in Missouri now and no one said anything to me. So you're probably wrong. No, go ahead. <laughs> KansasCity.com and Opinion Editorials. St. Louis OBGYN Amy Adante tweeted this week about the real-world effect of the requirements being imposed on patients and doctors at the last clinic performing abortions in Missouri. Today, the doctor wrote, I was forced by the state of Missouri to perform an unnecessary pelvic exam on a patient terminating her pregnancy for a fetal anomaly. She is heartbroken over her situation, and I was forced to do an invasive, uncomfortable exam. It broke me as a physician to do this to her. To her, not for her, not for any medical reason, but to keep the clinic open, at least for now. So when things like this are happening, and granted, it's obviously, you know, it's different than what's happening in the book, but things that they're doing to women to make them have a pelvic exam to do something like this, and even doctors who are like, I don't want to do this, there's no reason to do this, it feels like it's happening to make these people feel ashamed and to do something invasive to their bodies. So Atwood isn't so far off from guessing that sometime in the future, these types of things can happen. Right, and Brian had pointed us just if you Google nationalreview.com, do a search on Handmaid's Tale within that site that you're going to see all these conservative articles saying just what a hysterical fever dream this whole scenario is. People on the left are so quick to say, this could happen now, there's stuff already happening like this now, and that just completely ignores the fundamental supposed devotion of conservatives toward freedom such that you know they would want to separate out the abortion issue and the invasiveness into women's lives about related to abortion because right that's supposed to be about another living being and there would be the same sort of potential interventions that you don't hear about this from conservatives so much about how you bring up your kids that's more what liberals are notorious for, second-guessing parents. And if you think most people are basically stupid, then yes, we need national or at least state standards for education. We cannot just, whatever you want to do for your kid is fine. And that concern for the children in those two potential ways, however objectionable it may be in its various forms, maybe you could separate out from the idea of wholesale slavery of anybody. The real problem here is if you are holding up The Handmaid's Tale as this is what we need to be worried about, then something that's way less than that 
isn't therefore minor, right? Oh, well, we're not in the handmade sale. We're just requiring these invasive procedures. Like, well, yeah, that's still really bad though. You can be less bad than something terrible and still be terrible. So in a way, maybe the handmade sale has this effect of saying, well, at least we're not doing that. That's kind of a low bar. You can aim to do better than just not having a theocracy where way more than half the population actually is enslaved in some way. For me, one of the most effective scenes in the entire third season, and maybe the whole series for me, and partially because I just absolutely love Bradley Whitford, was when the Waterfords came over and what, what did they call it when they had to do the, the the witness bear witness to the ceremony and have her checked to make sure that you know that they were actually following through with the ceremony and seeing that relationship between him and his wife oh my goodness it just broke me I thought that was terrible casting by the way that Bradley Whitford in there I could not just deal with Josh Lyman and Zoe Bartlett being on screen together again I know I know but I kind of loved it. I loved him, but it was also, I had just been rewatching the West Wing and there's that episode where they go to the bar together in a group and I'm like, oh man, come on. Would you have preferred Matthew Perry? (laughs) To me, I actually felt like it was more uncomfortable because of that, but I also really, it was so beautifully done to see them have this mutual respect for each other and just be like, well, here we are, two people who don't want to do this, but let's not die today. I just thought it was going to be like a, a traveling show where they just kept coming out doing different characters. And there was going to be a little intermission with a juggler and they'd come back out and they'd do the lion in winter or something. Oh so. my goodness. So I like the fact that as the show expanded, it made more and more people victims. That that's kind of an honest appraisal of what this kind of self-perpetuating situation would be. That even somebody who was instrumental in getting the ball rolling and creating this horrible society ends up being victimized by it. And you don't have to feel, you know, just as sorry for those people as for the primary objects of oppression, but the fact that everybody gets screwed by this, like that seems a very honest take to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, it was a really important thing to have. What is his name? Commander um, Joseph. Lawrence. Uh, Joseph. Lawrence. Yeah. Lawrence. To have the Lawrence family, I think, added a really interesting element. A little far-fetched, I would presume, to have that many people in that household just opposing everything and just getting away with housing people and you know being like an underground railroad. But I suppose if you're going to have an underground railroad, it's a kind of a better place to have it at somebody who is the architect of that land in the first place. Only someone who was able to, to take liberties and not be suspected of things could maybe successfully pull it off. So it's not that there weren't other people who tried, but they would be ones who were hanging on the wall. Whereas he was much less likely to be in that position. Right. I think it's been a very difficult writing task as it's gone on. This is, we're talking about the differences between the book and the show here that the book is more a slice of life in this society and it's more about explaining society and it doesn't actually explain what happens to the main character at the end and she is passive and this is a recording we found that, so she's only remarkable in the fact that she recorded this, right? She got to a place of safety such that she could make a bunch of cassette tapes, which they actually bring back that idea that they, you know, she's recording on music cassette tapes and she leaves a little music at the beginning as camouflage that that's actually, you know, in season three brought back. I thought that was cool from the book. But if they're going to dwell on her, if they're going to make it a multi-season thing, if they're going to make it not just a slice of life, but something that will eventually give the audience satisfaction, then 
it has to be that, like, why are we telling this character's story as opposed to Janine's story or Moira's or anybody else's story is a major thing because this is sort of the history of how the society was taken down. Like, this is someone who might have seemed unremarkable at first but ends up being a super badass. So, like, if you take that as sort of the narrative point, this is what the story is about. It's not just about picking a random character and telling her story, but it's about the fall of the society through an instrumental hand. Then, like, I buy it. It would have had to have something like this. First, the Waterford residence and now the Lawrence residence, where there's sort of more and more liberties taken and more and more complicit to treason against the society, or else she just would have been smacked down and she would have been long since dead. The story would have had to stop. Are you saying that that's more effective in the TV show than it would, than it's portrayed in the book? Her character or her arc? I'm just saying that if the book is going to continue, People already complained about, oh, season two was just more sorrow. It was just more kind of more season one. And I think, yeah, it's going to get repetitive or you have to have some movement towards ass kicking resolution or you might as well just stop the story at season one. Yeah, I think you're right. But in a way, I feel like as much as I love the TV show, I feel like I'm going to be partial to the book because part of the point of it is that she's just a regular person there who kind of opposed things and kind of didn't set back a little bit more. I feel like that's more reflective of the majority of people is we allow things to happen and we might fight back here and there, but we're not as badass as Alfred in the TV show. And there's a lesson to be learned there. Did either of you look at the description for the Testaments to know what it was about? Tell us, Brian. Margaret Atwood's sequel picks up the story 15 years after Alfred stepped into the unknown with the explosive Testaments of three female narrators from Gilead. I don't know if one of the three will be her or not. It could be, but it's really continuing this theme of different perspectives on a society. It sounds like a a good approach and a very interesting one. It's a very Atwood way to handle things. Yeah, I really am looking forward to it. Have you read the Matt Adams series? Well, that's what she does in each book. She has different narrators for each book, so it's all set in the same world around the same time, but you see different parts of that society explained. So I think it could be really interesting. Actually, I think it could be really interesting to see if she could write a book from one of the commander's perspectives as well, or one of the commander's wives, although they would be committing treason by writing it down or you know, speaking it into a recorder, I suppose. It's a more democratic way of telling a story. David Brand had argued against Star Wars, that Star Wars is replete with individual chosen people who can accomplish so much more. It's just super, super elitist. And that parallels telling history from the point of view of the leaders as opposed to all the millions of other people that were doing stuff during that time. Did either of you get a chance to watch some of the video with the interview with Bill Moyers and Margaret Atwood? The little clip that you linked to, yeah, what did you... Yes. I'm interested to see what you all think of that. So just to kind of give a very brief intro to it for the listeners, Bill Moyers did... An interview with Margaret Atwood, you can watch it on YouTube, about her books, her writing, and she talks a lot about religion. Now, Margaret Atwood herself is what she calls a strict agnostic. He asks her if she could choose to build a world without God, would she do that? And she basically says, I couldn't do that because we create them no matter what. If you were creating a utopia, then would you create it without God? And she's like, that's impossible. I've always thought this is a really interesting thought experiment. So I was interested to hear what you guys thought about it. It really conforms to what you said about her being a self-described speculative fiction writer rather than a science fiction writer in that she was only describing something that could happen because she's sticking to her guns on that saying, well, 
anyone can write anything, I guess, but she can't imagine a world where it's possible. So she doesn't have any interest in portraying that in her world. How do you feel about that as a writer? I feel like the religious aspects of the book are maybe the least interesting to me, just from a, my own personal interest standpoint. I'm trying to imagine if The Handmaid's Tale could exist as a completely secular society, the way that Soviet Russia portrayed itself as being secular. If they could have done this, and I, I feel like people are capable of pretty horrible things with or without religion. I'm not sure I totally had the same perspective as, as her on that, but understand where she was coming from in that interview for sure. I had to kind of get on the general point of could there be people without a hunger for God? She says, well, as long as there's language, there's going to be a hunger for God. And we would need more text to explore to really decode that and, and see if it makes sense. Clearly, her objection, though, is to political uses of religion, that she just wishes that people would just keep their religion to themselves. And this is a, a fairly common, I probably hopefully uncontroversial view at this point. You know, of course, you could point out all the good political uses that people use religion for and, you know, using it as a binding force to get things done. But clearly, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think so much of what's pointed out in the show as they get into it is that religion is just a pretext. Like, it is something that they honestly believe in, but it doesn't explain the ruthlessness it doesn't explain, once you open the door to fanaticism, is it the final episode of the third season where she there's a flashback to her being captured in the first place? This is kind of preparing you for her eventually that she's going to kill one of these guards later in the episode. There, I spoiled it. Not because it's you know a screaming, I don't want to say Christian, but Gileadian fanatic, but just as somebody, you know, as they're capturing these women, and putting people with Down syndrome in cages, they're all just like, fuck you, move, 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 fuck you. Like, these are just people being unleashed Lord of the Flies style. And so that's what I think ultimately this is about. It's that the religion is a tool, is an interesting factor to consider in how this can happen, how our normal sensibilities for polite behavior can be suspended in some greater good. But we had a Partial Examined Life episode on Hannah Arendt on the banality of evil, her book Eichmann in Jerusalem. I'll link to it from the show notes where, yeah, something very similar was going on, that fascism, loyalty to the Fuhrer, doing whatever it is the Fuhrer demands without questioning it becomes essentially the religion for that society. So you, you don't need a specific doctrine to be a religion in the sense she's objecting to. Do you remember, since you just read the book, Alfred, did it, she ever mention being religious at all in the book, in her past life? Or I don't think so, no. I mean, yeah, they make a deal about it in the show, right? The parallel between baptizing the new baby and how that's done in the new society versus how they baptized their first one. I actually like that a lot because they're not just saying like, here's religion and all the bad aspects of it. They still have Alfred portrayed as somebody who went against her mother and had her baby baptized. But then also there are several references when they say, you know, that they'll be praying for each other, like with, with the Marthas and the handmaids. So you're seeing both sides of it, right? You're seeing how it's used as a tool to separate people, but also how it's used as a tool to get people through a very difficult time. And I think what the show does in the last couple of episodes of season three, too, where people are realizing that all the, particularly with Emily's character, right? The things that you do to survive and how terribly you feel about those things. Obviously, like killing somebody is against the commandments. And at some point, many of these handmaids have either killed somebody or struck someone in the hopes of killing them. And how do they deal with that guilt now in their new lives? 
But yeah, I like the exploration in this season of, it's very much like Walking Dead, the parallel of how people are dehumanized, that her choices are either to submit to the will of the forces oppressing her or just be a self-righteous badass rebel, but that in having to maintain this duality to be this, just that it's more complicated than that. And that that does things to your soul as they show, what is the name of her uh, walking partner in this season? Oh, I don't remember her name. She was excellent though too. Ugh. Who tries to buy into the company line, the forces that are oppressing her, ends up just going berserk. Just literally, yes. <laughs> going postal. Yes. As a result of that, that you just, you can't actually do that. That what is being required is inhuman. That's actually brought up in the book when they introduce the commander Waterford takes her to the whorehouse. Jezebel's? Yes, to Jezebel's. And it's like, well, people are going to be people. You have to provide these outlets for them. So they acknowledge that and as a way of making it less oppressive for the people in charge, at least. But it's unclear to what extent that fact of human nature is acknowledged for the rest of them. I think we saw a parallel with the, um, really struggling to keep conjuring this word, the participation, the put forth someone who's done a terrible crime and tell the handmaids, when I blow the whistle, you can all go crazy and, and kill this guy. And that was their release. As it goes, you know, it's very different from Jezebel's, but it's that same kind of thing that you can't deny them that little piece of their human nature. There also just seems to be an extra power in being able to be flexible with the rules that if you're somebody who's in a position of power and you can grant your underlings certain privileges, but then you can just on a whim take them away. You know, it seems like that's a feature, not a bug in, in the system that they developed. There's a, what I think is one of the hardest scenes to watch in Schindler's List where Ray Fine's character, the, he was a Nazi officer, is treating a Jewish woman who he has in his household, you know, very tenderly, just trying to like try that on for size to see if he can. He's able to, but then on a whim, he's just able to have her killed as well. So it's a, a display of freedom being offered, but the whole thing is an illusion. And that really is the way it is with Jezebel's is right. These women have absolutely no power and no agency, even though they may be allowed to dress in the way of the old style. It's, it's all an illusion. This podcast is a bummer. All right, talk about your favorite, funniest part of the show. That Moira sure is spunky for a while. <laughs> you know, the show couldn't really use comedy as a dramatic release for the audience, so they kind of went with moments of badass power. And so we had some big scenes of explosions or the Waterfords as they are led into Canada and then the... Oh, that felt good, didn't it? Royal Canadian Mounted Police swarm on them, and that's awesome as their charges are being read against them, and those were our release moments. You know, what I thought it was supposed to, maybe it was not supposed to be a release, but I thought I was going to have this great little moment, because Luke has had all this time to come up with what he's going to say at Commander Waterford, and then before he gets a chance to say anything of value, he just punches him in the face, and that's the end of it. That was a letdown for me. I wanted Luke to have a better scene for himself than that. It is funny that there is no comic relief character, that there is no B-plot of like, well, actually, maybe Janine. Well, isn't that a weird thing? That she's been tortured and had her eye taken out and gone crazy. And I think even in the book and in the first movie, she's kind of like flouncing around in that she's, until it all turns tragic, she's at least the one that 
holds forth being the possibility of comic relief. Janine could be in Twin Peaks and just fit right in. I did not find anything humorous about her situation. I mean, of Glenn poisoning a woman in the colonies, running over the guards with a car when she, I mean, she really, we were having these little releases, these small victories that always were followed up by something worse. But I feel like that's what we were given as the audience to at least not feel totally bleak all the time. Or occasionally we'd get a power walk towards the camera with some music at the end of an episode when June had just done something and we get this badass moment as she's walking to the camera. So for like that, as the credits roll, we can feel good about things a teeny tiny little bit, but that's the amount. Well, I think even just having Bradley Whitford in there, like the fact that some of the things he says, you know, that he just has a natural comic timing that even if he's being a bastard, that it's just kind of funny. Some of what comes out of his mouth. And so then they can use that for dramatic effect by making this, Oh, now that's actually not funny. Now he's being scary for a minute or now he's, you know, we don't quite know how to read him. I think they could get more use also out of Cherry Jones in that, you know, she has the real potential to be rather funny as June's mom. Right. I was reading about that as being one of the changes that in the book, her mother is presented as someone who is instrumental in women's liberation and how June's generation did not appreciate what the folks in the 60s and before had to do. And so that character is introduced further in the later seasons, but that was, you know, left out of the initial pass. Yeah. And she is kind of a fun loving free spirited character. Although again, that's just supposed to highlight, isn't it tragic that she's dead or, or (laughs) give June another voice in her head to react to. All right. So I have a question. If you haven't interacted with the handmaid's tale in any of its formats and you could give someone an entry point, would you have them, read the book first, watch season one, and then read the book and keep watching. Just watch season three and nothing else. Just the movie. Just this awesome graphic novel. What's the entry point for Handmaid's Tale? Or this podcast. Or this podcast, yes. Oh, we have an answer. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I would think the book would have been better first. Usually I like the book first just because you can just admire, even if you know what's going to happen in the story, you could admire the cinematography and stuff. But she's so skillful, I think, in slowly revealing what the hell's going on in the society, who this person is, and what she's about to go through, right? They don't get around to the breeding aspect of it until certainly not the first couple chapters, right? It really builds toward the ceremony. And I can't remember, it's been too long since I saw season one, whether it's similar in the way it reveals things you know, unless you just jumped on this, even if you're just watching the show fresh, probably you've heard something about it. Like, I just think this would be best if it was just complete mystery. Just spring this on somebody that you know that is not aware of this at all. I assume the book would be better a starter than season one. Yeah, I say book. It's similar to Game of Thrones, unless you're into this kind of stuff where you like a little bit of self-torture for a little bit of revenge. There are a lot of people I know who just wouldn't be able to put up with the TV show, either because the pacing is slow or because they find it too disturbing. But I think in the book, you can control more of that. It's not a long read. It's not a difficult read. So I would definitely go for the book. I can't really imagine not knowing this world in my head. I guess I read it when I was young enough, and maybe I knew what it was about before I read it. I don't even know. But I feel like the idea of picking it up completely cold seems impossible. I don't know if it was slow played or not, because this late in my life, after decades have gone by since reading it, it's a little hard to picture young Brian. What's this about? 
It's a lady in a red dress. I'll read that book. It looks like fun. I like this better as a horror fever dream story rather than I would imagine most people, especially if you know, you've avoided the show until now or just getting the book, like are approaching it from this current political climate. I think those are interesting thoughts to have after you've experienced it as a story, but especially the way Adwood tells it. And also, you know, the show is really very well shot and very well acted. And I think just as a piece of drama, you know, it's possible. I'm pretty tolerant of things that run slow. <laughs> I know a lot of people, you know, just have had trouble with that show, especially like season two of just, couldn't you have just made this much, much shorter? <laughs> but I'm just used to that slow burn kind of thing. And so I just think it should be appreciated as art first and foremost. And then maybe there are political lessons to be learned. I'm with you on that too. We get so much of our own ideas in and say, this would never happen, or this is totally what's happening, and nobody's quite right about it. But it's a man, it's a, it's a good story, and it's well told. So it's kind of nice that Atwood doesn't have the responsibility in the book to reveal the entire political machinations of how the society came about and how now it will apparently have to be undone in the, in the show. There's a few words here and there, but it's not about that. It's about this one person's experience and from a, and apparently in this, in the sequels here, some other people's experiences within that system. Yeah. I guess I'm almost contradicting what I said earlier, which is that the people don't matter. It's about the system. Well, if that was the case, then you'd just write the world of the handmaid's tale written Gilead. Gilead, co-written by Margaret Atwood with three other nerds with, who have, you know, the, the equivalent of the Song of Ice and Fire thing. Maybe we'll get to that point. But that's where she gets all this praise, rightly so, for being such a skilled author, because she's at once world building. And it seems like she's just giving us someone who's observing, but we actually do get a whole narrative arc with Offred, which this book would not be what it is without. So, yes. And I like that when you're in that situation that what slavery does, this is a meditation on slavery, kills your soul and tries to co-opt you so that you're actually supporting, even if you started out rebelling against the things that they're telling you to be guilty about or whatever, it creeps in. And so just a picture of how that works and that we get in the show, different characters and different stages of how rebellious she or the other characters are feeling from moment to moment. And uh, yeah, it's just such fertile ground to explore. Fertile ground. Gross. Ah. <laughs> That's the joke we were looking for. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap it up. Folks can go to prettymuchpop.com, make comments on this episode, tell us what else you would like to cover in this area. If we're going to do more novels, I think most of the novels that we would do would be things that are on TV because those are the most popular novels and any really popular novel is going to be on TV or in a movie eventually. But theoretically, if there was a popular enough book, just as a book, maybe we'd cover it. So tell us what you want us to talk about. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, you guys. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com.